I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dana. Yes, fearful. It's new episode time. Okay, I'm ready. What's the topic? The plan is to do another one of them quick hits like we did with QAnon. Quick hits. Yes, yes, guy. We're happy to see you too. Anyway, Dana, this time it's going to touch on two subjects. Which are? First, a bit of an end zone dance around the ICU bed where Alex Jones's not-quite-criminal InfoWars empire is struggling to take what are hopefully its final breaths. That was a provocative mixed metaphor, but I think I get it. What's the other thing? The Denver airport. What? Yep. Why? Because a bunch of dipshits have decided everything about it is a massive conspiracy. Okay, a weird combination of topics, but maybe you could make it work. But there's a problem. Which is? Well, I can't do one of my patented cold opens. You know where I do some sort of scene-setting sketch that brings listeners into the mindset of the conspirators? Yes, I'm familiar. Why can't you? Because there isn't really a scenario I can think of that covers both topics. I mean, I could have the 40-year-old boy do another Alex Jones impression, I guess. Hold on, let me ask him. Hey, Mike. Yes, Fearful? Remember when you did that screaming Alex Jones intro for the show? I sure do. Think you could manage another one of those? Do I think I could manage another one of those? Yeah, I probably could manage another one of those if I was so inclined. Now, am I so inclined? I, I think not. I'm going to tell you that right now. Why? Oh, you want to know why? Well, because I'm the fucking talent, man. I'm not some Sandy Hook and monkey who's going to come in here and just fucking bust out an Alex Jones just because you're telling me to do so. Yeah, you're Fearful Jesuit. Yeah, you're the king of the show. Yeah, you're a big deal. Nobody knows who the fuck you are. But I'm not Dana. I don't jump through fucking hoops, and I don't just fucking slap a desk and start growling because somebody told me to. When you say jump, I don't say how high. You say jump, I say might as well jump, and I do a fucking David Lora split kick off the goddamn drum riser and kick you right in the goddamn face, and you fucking deserve it. That's right. So it's gas, grass, or ass. I don't Alex Jones for free. Which one are you going to fucking pay me? What about that computer guy you used for the QAnon episode? Ah, good point. Hey, computer guy? Yes, I'm a computer. I'm a computery guy. Everything made out of buttons and wires. Uh-huh. Anyway, you did a great job on that other episode. Your cold, emotionless reading really brought home the absurdity of QAnon and his drops. Thank you. I always try to do my best. Speaking of which, think you could do something like that for me again, only this time about- well. This is awkward. I never actually received my payment for last time. Payment? There must be a misunderstanding. You're a computer program. Yes. A professional-grade voice synthesizer. Didn't you get my rate sheet? Uh, no. Well, you'll be hearing from my legal software. Good day, sir. Jeez, that seems ominous. Okay, so they're both out. I see your problem. So, what's the plan then? Well... I'm thinking about kicking things off with a scripted dialogue between you and me that explains the situation. Then, at some point, I'll just fade in those ominous sounds that I always use to build tension before I do the turnaround, and then I'll cue the intro music. But won't that be kind of weird, since the dialogue you're envisioning doesn't really generate any of the nervous energy you normally depend on? Yeah, but I just feel hinky not having those sounds play at all in the intro. 
doesn't feel like a real Paranoid Strain episode without the weird noises. Okay, you do you. But so to review, you're just going to have us talk about this cold open problem and then stick that in as a cold open. Is that even going to work? I'm not sure, but it's worth a shot. Okay, I'll admit that was a little awkward, but this show should be a real hoot. This time we pee on the smoking corpse of Alex Jones's Infowars. Then we take a little Rocky Mountain detour to tell you all about why the Denver airport looms so large in the minds of the gullible. Now let's pretend I made some sort of brilliant joke that connects those two things together, and I'll officially welcome you back to the Paranoid Strain. As you know, this is a quick hit episode. Paranoid Strain, quick hit. Which means there's a lot less deep dive research and a lot more up to the minute reporting and video clips. At least for the Alex Jones stuff. But for the Denver airport, we've got an honest to God extended expert interview with the guy who runs public relations for the place, which we captured during our 2017 Paranoid Strain road trip, and which we've been just aching to share with you guys ever since. But before we get to that, let's do our standard housekeeping and welcome any new listeners to the show. Hey new folks, glad to have you. Every two months, we try to help you understand why your godmother, your ski instructor, and especially that one Facebook friend you can't quite bring yourself to block because she was such an emotional support during the dark days of sixth grade, believe so many weird things. In essence, we're a show that explains conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists, and conspiracy thinking, and hopes to provide insight on why all of those things can have such a deleterious effect on the world we share. On months when we don't post a show, our pals at our sister podcast, Stupid Land, create absurdist riffs on our topics, complete with a level of audio production so impressive, it sometimes makes us weepy. Once you've hopefully enjoyed this episode, we invite you to dig into the archives for information on everything from QAnon to Posse Comitatus. Or drop us a line at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, visit our fancy website, join the Facebook group, or look us up on Twitter or YouTube. With no further ado then, let's go back to rhetorically pummeling Alex Jones, a job we started back in our seventh episode. That show dealt with the topic of false flags, and since we already covered that subject... And Jones' seeming addiction to making false flag accusations. In excruciating detail, we're not going to relitigate it here. We also covered Jones' meteoric rise over the past decade, with his Infowars empire going from a conspiracy backwater to perhaps the most prominent and influential quote-unquote news source within the entire subculture. Well, boy, have things changed since then. I'm talking about Alex Jones. He is the founder of Infowars, and he is now feeling the heat himself. YouTube, Facebook, and Apple all announcing they're removing his content from their platforms. Here's how YouTube Jones's account explains. went through the standard processes. He had several warnings. You'll remember that he was required to delete some violating tweets. Just a few weeks ago, his account was suspended for an entire week. And after the violation from a post yesterday, Twitter decided that it was time for him to receive the most onerous punishment, which is a permanent suspension. That means none of his accounts can be reviewed globally, that he's not allowed to make new accounts anymore and he is permanently Hold kicked the plug off for infowars on their social networks because he had broken their policies 
Uh, there's a lot of concern over the last couple of months that he whipped his followers into a fear where they would harass or even do worse to a lot of these families who are impacted by all of this. There's a story in the New York Times about how the parents of one of the kids from Sandy Hook couldn't go visit their child's grave because of how much harassment they get. So there's been a lot of concern that this stuff needs to be handled. Yes, our technology overlords, including Apple, Google, their subsidiary YouTube, Facebook, their subsidiary Instagram, and Twitter have all banned Jones, Infowars, Prison Planet, and his other various properties and content from their services, which is the nearest thing you can get in the modern online world to a total media blackout. It's a long way for Jones to have fallen. In 2016, he had the ear of the man who was about to become president. In 2017, that president's administration granted his cadre of unqualified Infowars reporting monkeys press credentials for the fucking White House. Well, it's official, folks. InfoWars receives White House press credentials. The alternative media has the establishment running scared. Couple of notes here. It later turned out that this was actually a one-day credential, which, as InfoWars itself noted, led to some sick burns from real journalists on Twitter. I thought it was kind of interesting to see some of the tweets that uh, some of the trolls uh, put out here. People who are reporters, people who are part of this White House press guild monopoly. One of them was a guy named Trey Yinkst. He said, InfoWars is given a day pass. White House credential, not a permanent press pass. High school students can apply for day passes. Well, here's the deal. Note two, Alex released a video the day that this blessed event transpired. And while I think he's happy about it, it's honestly hard to tell the difference between Alex on top of the world and Alex afraid that world's about to end. The knife's already gone to the heart. Oh my God, this is so incredible. We have scored a direct stab in those sons of bitches' hearts. We gotta keep running the knife in, though, folks. We gotta keep running it in there. Not worry what they're doing, Dutch. You want to fight? You're getting it. You wanted to overrun us and poison us and take our families and kill us? You will die, not us. You anti-human crap. Regardless, Jones had reached heights that other conspiracy ranters only dream of. But then, that same year, Jones lost a hard-fought, bitter custody war with his ex-wife, during which his lawyer, trying desperately to convince a judge that his client should be allowed around any children, much less his own, after pulling shit like this on a regular basis. What do I do, Lord? Destroy the child. They're demons. I know your mustache is cool. Destroy you got little gold-framed glasses. I will go to hell. Child. I'm animated. My heart's big. Start your journey to super male vitality today. Child. I like to fight, too. We're going to stomp your ass into the ground, you little communist piece of trash. I'm a human, and I'm coming. Humanity's going to come together. Ah! Ah! We know we're under attack. <laughs> so I never expected Trump charging into a goblin's nest to not get some goblin vomit and slopping blood on him. I don't want to see him kissing goblins. Spider goats are at least 25 years old. They're bashing it because I don't like gay people. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Gay. Anywho, as we reported last time we talked to you about this clown, his no-doubt long-suffering lawyer worked hard to convince the judge that his client was, in his words, a performance artist. And he had plenty of evidence to work with, given the man's constant, completely insane rants. So imagine that same lawyer's chagrin when his client days later, said in essence that he means what he says, no matter how insane it is, and that his performance artist persona only counts when he's wearing a costume or mask. Costume or mask, you say? Yeah, let's hold that thought for just a moment. 
Anyway, so Jones didn't get his way in the custody case last year. But this ban is a much, much bigger deal. For those of us who are old enough to remember the time when there were only three major networks on television, it's as if Jones and his fiefdoms have been kicked off of ABC, NBC, and even CBS, where angry old people, Jones's key demographic, shake their fists at the clouds of modernity. So times have gotten harder for AJ. But you know, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So, how is Alex handling his recent rough patch? Oh, about as well as you'd expect. And you see, you've learned, and you've learned very, very well that only the internet matters, not UHF, not VHF, nothing. Only our control matters. And so now you're being taught to submit. So let me tell you about Operation 666. Yes! <laughs> Operation 666! Operation Freedom! To destroy you! I'm just a donkey. <laughs> On the 6th of August, we banned for wars from 27 platforms. And now, on September 6th, we banned you from Twitter. Remember that mask or costume thing we mentioned earlier? I think it's very, very important that all of you understand that preceding monologue was delivered from within a donkey mask. We don't have a joke for this, but... For real. Donkey mask. Good lord, was that fun to say. As you might expect, getting kicked off of all of these platforms isn't exactly great news for a guy who runs an empire that converts credulous viewers' eyeballs into purchases of hilariously named products from his InfoWars-branded store. Both we and John Oliver have touched on this before, but while there are still plenty of links on the InfoWars site to the InfoWars store, from which visitors can purchase everything from Wake Up America Patriot Blend Coffee to a t-shirt depicting a triumphant, suspiciously muscular and virile Trump, resplendent in ancient Greek warrior cosplay, holding aloft a severed head of Medusa, aka Hillary Clinton. So Alex Jones's ongoing live shows feature a heaping dose of endemic advertising encouraging true believers to buy shit from said InfoWars store. But while it's been reported that more than two-thirds of Jones's revenue comes from site purchases, and of course said site continues to churn out and post insane content, unaffected by the massive deplatforming he's experienced elsewhere on the internet, he still needs to advertise that site through major channels like Facebook and YouTube in order to draw the eyeballs of the credulous to said content and then in turn make the pitch for, say, Survival Shield X2, Silver Bullet Colloidal Silver, or Secret 12. All of which sounds like leftover props from Wolfman Battles the Space Mutants, but are apparently supplements Jones expects you to put into your body. So, while his local paper, The Austin Statesman, reported in August that Jones's sites are still receiving more than 1 million page views per day, that number is dwarfed by the 2.4 million YouTube subscribers he lost when the platform kicked him off. Not to mention the invaluable opportunities to shill paranoid nonsense and, by extension, products with questionable medical claims that were previously afforded to him by Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Because the Bard was a big fan of farce, we think it's safe to call Jones's fall Shakespearean. 2016 and 17 saw the brand of vitriolic, evidence-free insanity Jones had staked out as his unique domain permeate every facet of our public and social media lives. He achieved a level of popularity and mainstream attention that is unprecedented among conspiracy theorists of the modern era. 
He was a hero for the unhinged everywhere. And now, thanks to the same horrific talents that raised him to the pinnacle of dipshit mountain, he's been pushed off the peak, tumbling once again into his underground lair. Albeit an underground lair with enough room for him, his flunkies, and at least a million fellow travelers. It's still early days in October of 2018 as we're recording this. And as we all know by now, in America these days, nearly anything that you could conceive of could happen. Alex could be back on top tomorrow, because justice is elusive and nothing makes sense. But assuming that things continue on their current trajectory, with Alex significantly marginalized in comparison to his recent popular apex, we here at The Strain do have a radical career transition that Mr. Jones might want to explore. Recall his donkey mask performance from earlier? Yes! <laughs> Operation 666! Sure, it sounded completely insane, but it wouldn't in the right context. And it so happens that a certain classic rock band lost its singer not so long ago. We're just saying. Honestly, we're of two minds about this Jones thing. On the one hand, of course, it's nice to see him held to account for his ravings. And there's absolutely no doubt that he has said many reprehensible, untrue, disturbing, wretched things. Things that have caused real pain and suffering to people, often those who had already been victimized by tragedies like Sandy Hook and other mass shootings. In a just world, he deserves to have everything he earned by stirring up fear and anger, mining the pain and tragedy of others, stripped away from him. But we, of course, don't live in that just world. And we have a few questions about the long-term implications of completely removing Jones and his channels from the dominant platforms of the internet. We're big, big fans of the American version of free speech here at The Strain. That's the approach that puts any curtailing of said speech by the government under the strictest possible scrutiny. And it's why, while the U.S. has hate crime legislation, we don't have the same sort of punitive send-you-to-jail-for-saying-evil-shit-against-minorities hate speech codes that prevail in many other Western democracies. You can publish horrible racist bullshit like Holocaust revisionism or the Turner Diaries here without repercussions from the government. Please note, while we don't believe in government persecutions in these cases, we fully support peaceful, nonviolent resistance to these assholes from everyone in civil society, from the companies that won't employ them, to the activists who will protest and oppose them, to the friends and family who will distance themselves from their hate, to the attractive people who won't do that one thing in the bedroom they like. They know the one. We think that's a great system. For both personal and professional reasons, we like it when the crazies are allowed to crazy it up legally at maximum volume. After all, it makes for much better YouTube excerpts. And we believe the best antidote for bad speech is creating more good speech, not silencing the bad. Yes, of course, the First Amendment doesn't actually apply in the case of Jones v. all major internet platforms. All of the social media and content giants who remove Jones are private companies, and well within their rights to do so. But we don't like the precedent it sets. Big tech companies effectively silencing fringe speakers. Given our druthers, Jones would have been sued into oblivion by the Sandy Hook families and everyone else he has defamed, libeled, or otherwise illegally smeared. And his videos would remain on YouTube as a solemn cautionary tale of the depths to which conspiracist thinking can sink when it's left to fester. But even assuming you agree with the total deplatforming of Jones, we still have to ask, why did it happen now? Jones didn't do anything this year that in any way exceeds the irresponsible, misleading, utterly incoherent nonsense that he spewed in earlier times. What gives? 
As near as anyone can tell, once Apple started pulling Jones's podcast, the other tech giants, sensing they could take cover under the Cupertino behemoth's move, started their own purges, with sole holdout Twitter finally pulling the plug in early September after nearly a month of pressure. Okay, so they basically each use each other as cover for their actions. Something like, but those other guys did it, so don't pick on us. But why in the summer of 2018? It seems like one of those situations where something clicks, some unnamed Rubicon is crossed, and everyone in authority simultaneously decides it's time to take action to right a wrong of the past. You remember when they gave Martin Scorsese an Oscar for The Departed in 2007? And the Oscar goes to... Martin Scorsese. Kind of. And you remember how Scorsese had deserved the Best Director Oscar at least a half dozen times prior to that? Definitely. And you recall how, a few standout performances aside, The Departed wasn't actually that good of a movie? We've said it before, and we'll say it again. Come at us, bro. We're not the first to suggest that this amounted to a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Well, it seems to us that the Jones banning was the photo-negative version of this. Jones had been such a shitheel for so long that by the time Facebook got around to issuing a temporary suspension over four specific videos that apparently violated the company's hate speech policy. Of which, clearly, the Jones catalog contained hundreds, if not thousands, of examples. The die was cast. Everybody just decided that now was the time to show this fucking guy the door. It is worth pausing a brief moment to examine the theatrics that led directly to Jones being booted off of Twitter, mostly because the situation was so utterly weird. In early September, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey went to testify before Congress. This was part of a series of hearings in which executives of social media giants were called to D.C. to answer questions about their growing influence, as well as accusations, mostly by conservatives, that these companies were unfairly targeting right-of-center voices and sites for censorship. This event, as you might expect, drew an array of protesters, including not just Jones, but other leading lights of paranoid fringe culture, including one Laura Loomer. Loomer is the sort of person we don't want to focus on for too long, as we don't want to help her achieve the level of attention she, clearly, desperately craves. But prior to Dorsey's testimony, her biggest claim to fame was protesting a Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar, because the titular, power-hungry Roman had been put in a business suit, given a spray tan, had his hair coiffed just... so... Basically, they made him look a whole lot like Trump. This, of course, is in the long and sometimes even honored tradition of thespians using contemporary events and actors to bring home the power of Shakespeare's themes. But, of course, this means Julius Trump gets whacked in Act 3, so of course Loomer stormed the stage while her friend, the male voice you'll hear, filmed the festivities. New Yorkers can be assholes, yes, but the Goebbels comparison seem a bit much. Anywho, Loomer herself had experienced a number of incidents caused or exacerbated by her bad behavior. Including a permanent ban from Uber, after she complained via Twitter that she couldn't find any non-Muslim drivers to cart her to a press conference after a terrorist attack in New York. Classy. But her big idea for the congressional hearing was to livestream herself jumping to her feet abruptly, interrupting the proceedings, and videotaping herself issuing a plea to President Trump to do something, anything, 
about platforms like Dorsey's and their supposed censoring of conservative voices. Solid plan, even if the allegations were horseshit. But what she couldn't possibly have known is that the congressman she was interrupting, Billy Long, also happened to be a pretty damned fine auctioneer. President, before it is too late, because Jack Dorsey is trying to influence the election, huh? to sway the election. What's she saying? I can't understand her. What? Feel the election. That is why she's censoring and shadow banning. How about a damn twelve and a half, fifteen, seven and a half, twenty dollar to a half, five, seven and a half, thirty. Yep, thirty dollar down here to a half, five, thirty-five, seven and a half, forty. Hit four and a half, four seventy-five, five hundred five, five and a quarter, five and a half. I yield back. <laughs> So anyway, the whole hearing was kind of a shit show before Jones even started his shenanigans, which included, but were not limited to, making an ass out of himself interrupting a reporter's hallway interview with Senator Marco Rubio. That's why you didn't get elected. Do they need to be regulated? Marco Rubio and the snake. Little frat boy here. All right, man. Who are you? Who is this guy? I swear to God, I don't know who you are, You better hope you can be platforming. Tens of millions of views. Infowars. Bigger than Rush Limbaugh. He knows who Infowars well, is. But Playing this joke over here. That's why and the deplatforming didn't work. But, but, yeah, but here, here's, here's the question. Here's a question. Hey, don't touch me again, man. I'm asking you not to touch me. Well, sure. I'm just bad at you nicely. I know, but I don't want to be. I don't know. Oh, you want me to get arrested? I don't know who you are. It's not just going to take my first amendment. You're not going to get arrested, man. You're not going to get arrested. I'll take care of myself. Oh, oh, he'll beat me up. I didn't say that. I know I am, but he's so mad. You're not going to silence me. You are like you are literally like a little gangster thug. There are there are people in this country. Rubio just threatened to physically no. take care of me. There are people who that. feel that they're being um well, they are being first being amendment. Like he tells you China's the problem, which it is, but they're taking our free speech right now. But then during the same trip to DC, Jones made it a point to confront a CNN reporter named Oliver Darcy, who had been covering InfoWars for a while. The guy that goes around policing and calling for censorship and then claims that Trump's wrong, there's no censorship of conservatives or patriots. You are incredibly shameful. Man. How are you doing, Alex? You're just a look at you, look, look, you are literally an anti American, anti free speech coward. You're going to go down the history books at the Criminal News Network. This is the, one of the main, this is one of the main people right here who thinks you have no memory, who sits there and lobbies. Show him. That sits there and lobbies people to take other news off, <coughs> claiming they're fake when CNN is the fakest WMD. <coughs> I want you to know I'm starting to come up here a lot. We're going to be seeing a lot of each other. That's good. Just so you know. Always good to see you. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Oh, no, you don't talk back to mere slaves. You just act calling everybody sponsors to get them to dump you, working with Media Matters and the Nazi collaborator George Soros, right. smiling like a possum that climbed out of the rear end of a dead cow. You used that one several times. That's what you look like. You right? need to come up with some. You idea. look like a possum that got caught doing some really nasty stuff, in my view. Oliver Darcy, that, ladies and gentlemen. What was that? Anything to say? No, I have nothing to say to Alex. I, good seeing him here. Yeah, all he wants to do is silence everyone yeah. so he can then lie about him and get away with it. You're broadcasting on Twitter right now, I think, right? We're going on a lot of places. Right. You're being really silenced? Yeah, you've been trying to silence me there. Keep asking and that exchange, while again totally proving for the millionth time that Alex is a pure D, 100% asshole, is not all that different from a bunch of other accusations, including in 2017 when he harangued Bernie Sanders during a coincidental meeting at LAX, a video Jones proudly put on YouTube and which wasn't removed until the blanket ban a year later. Mr. Sanders, why do you think socialism works better than capitalism? And why do you live in a capitalist country? I don't know why you're running from me. Where are you flying today? You gonna to apologize to the Sandy Hook families, Alex? 
Well, that's the media misrepresents that. That's that. You, you apologize for all the wars you guys launched, the Democrats? All the millions you killed? Once again, the bans were a lifetime of asshole achievement, Oscar. Thus, we reach what may be the sad denouement of the Alex Jones saga. Platforms that once profited off of his extremism take an easy opportunity to ditch him when the wind turns, leaving him to try to rebuild with the true believers. And so it seems we come to the end of the Paranoid Strain's coverage of Jones, Infowars, et al. Except there's still one thing we've never explored. Where did Alex Jones come from in the first place? Ooh, a flashback. Cast yourselves into the depths of time. Eighteen years ago, in fact. When the internet was a fairly limited thing that helped you goof off at work, use Napster to steal music, and enable very, very slowly the download of individual, weirdly cropped, grainy porn images. Back then, Alex Jones was a local Austin radio talk show host who was certainly making waves, but had not yet blossomed into the full-blown, world-class crank we all know and loathe today. Given his unquestionable talent for his chosen field, Jones was probably destined to ascend to the throne of crankdom no matter what, but there's one guy who holds himself uniquely, if inadvertently, responsible for kickstarting Jones's rise. That guy is nonfiction author, radio reporter, and huge inspiration to the very show you're listening to, John Ronson. Bronson isn't exactly a household name, but if you live in one of those households where public radio is a regular fixture, his broad, Welsh-accented, rather tentative-sounding voice may be quite familiar. Here's an excerpt from his TED Talk based on his fantastic book, The Psychopath Test. The big story, he said, is corporate psychopathy. You want to go and interview yourself some corporate psychopaths? So I gave it a try. I wrote to the um, Enron people. I, I, I said, can I come and interview you in prison to find out if you're psychopaths? And they didn't reply. Uh, so I changed tack. Uh, I emailed Chainsaw Al Dunlap, uh, the uh, asset stripper from the 1990s. Uh, he would come into failing businesses and close down 30% of the workforce, just turn American towns into ghost towns. And I emailed him and I said, I believe you may have a very special brain anomaly that makes you special. Um, <laughs> interested in the predatory spirit and fearless. Can I come and interview you about your special brain anomaly? And he said, come on over. Anyway, he's just the best, and we recommend everything he does without hesitation. It was his book, Them, Adventures with Extremists, that was one of the most important catalysts for and influences on this show and your host. And that's also the first book where Ronson writes about his long, tangled relationship with Alex Jones. In 2000, Ronson was at work on the reporting that would eventually lead to the book Them and to his similarly themed BBC series, The Secret Rulers of the World, when he met Alex Jones. Clearly recognizing a great nonfiction character when he met one, Ronson gave him the idea that would help Alex make his first big mark, infiltrating the Bohemian Grove. Hold on, what the fuck is Bohemian Grove? We'll let Ronson introduce this annual event for the global elite with a clip taken from episode four of the Secret Rulers of the World series, the episode where Jones is featured. The religion's come. The new world odor has a certain smell about it. The smell of death. But there's something else. These shadowy elitists, men like Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller, are rumored to attend a bizarre annual summer camp in Northern California called Bohemian Grove. This is the story of one man's attempts to infiltrate and secretly film inside Bohemian Grove. That 
one man he spoke of is, of course, Jones, though Ronson was there every step of the infiltrating way. As he put it in his recent book, The Elephant in the Room, I am basically Alex Jones' Simon Cowell. I gave him the idea that catapulted him to fame. My idea was for the two of us to sneak into a secretive summer camp in the forest of Northern California called Bohemian Grove, where powerful men like George H.W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and Henry Kissinger were rumored to undertake an annual ritual in which a human effigy was thrown into the fiery belly of a stone owl. You know, when he puts it like that, how could anyone say no to this invitation? Mm, I find most people would find it pretty easy to say no to that, actually. Perhaps. But sign me up. Oh, and lest you think that early 2000s Alex was any different than the current day model, Ronson gives this taste of Jones's contemporary reaction. He loved the idea. I'll smuggle a camera in and get right up in their faces as they worship their devil owl! I think stealth might be a better approach, I said. You're right, said Alex. Stealth. Here is Ronson talking about the book and Jones on C-SPAN in 2002 and helpfully explaining that whole human effigy, body of a stone owl thing. How close did you get to the Bilderberg meeting? Not very close. But I did get to see the owl burning ceremony at Bohemian Grove after I was chased away by Bilderberg security. Are there, is there any connection between these two groups, by the way? Not really. There is in the minds of the conspiracy theorists. It's all part of the New World Order. But I think in reality, Bohemian Grove is quite right-wing and Bilderberg is centre-left. Bohemian Grove's Republican. That's why you get Dick Cheney and the Bush family going and so on. You will stay there the whole three weeks? Mm. I think quite a lot of the really big names, the Dick Cheneys and the George Bushes, go for the second week. Apparently the second week's the most popular week. And the second week begins with the with the cremation of care, the owl ceremony. Cremation of care. Mm. They say that the human effigy they're throwing into the fiery belly of the owl uh, symbolises all their troubles in the, in the marketplace. Now, I've got to say, I don't blame the conspiracy theorists for thinking that when, you know, when you put Henry Kissinger together with a berobed, you know, procession culminating in this, you know, mock human sacrifice. It's kind of no wonder you've got yourself a conspiracy theory. Now, I snuck in with Alex Jones, this far-right-wing conspiracy theorist who believed that the cremation of care proved that the secret rulers of the world practice human sacrifice. Where did you find Alex Jones? Uh, he was in Austin, Texas. I'd actually met him at Waco. I was at Waco at the remnants of David Koresh's place with Randy Weaver. And Alex Jones was rebuilding... David Koresh's branch Davidian Church with money donated from his radio listeners. Alex Jones is what kind of a guy? What, what, how do you explain him? He's, he's 26 years old and looks 10 years older. He's a, he's a hero to the, to the militias. He's a, he's a burgeoning new hero. On one hand, he's kind of like Tex Mars, you know, a popular underground radio talk show host. But he's also much more than somebody like Tex Mars. He's, a, he's an activist, so he rebuilt... David Koresh's church. He Where does. can you hear him? Uh, Infowars.com is his website. And, and So in the end, what happened was that Ronson, Jones in tow, infiltrated this deeply silly-sounding Bohemian Grove ceremony for Richie Rich types. What they saw was, apparently, this highly stylized ceremony where the assembled titans of industry and government put a dummy representing the cares of the world into a fire, while an audio track plays some simulated screaming. All of this helps the attendants symbolically rid themselves of those cares during their stay at Muir Woods Fantasy Camp, sponsored by the Knights Templar and Halliburton. But what did Alex see? Something altogether more sinister. 
In The Elephant in the Room, Ronson quotes the documentary Jones put out based on his spin on the Bohemian Grove experience. According to Jones's breathless narration, during the ceremony, Something particularly pleasing was happening for the Bohemian Grovers. There was grotesque smacking of lips and bizarre enjoyment. A, a true sacrifice may have been developing, according to some occult experts. There you see the funeral pyre burning with the effigy of a human. Or it could be real, ladies and gentlemen. It could be real! Well, n- no, it couldn't, Alex. But Jones and company were just as horrified that Ronson was dismissing their concerns, as Ronson was that they genuinely seemed to believe this ceremony wasn't simply ridiculous, but rather was, as Alex ominously put it, bizarre Luciferian garbage. This history with AJ occasioned Ronson in the lead-up to the 2016 election, which seemed to be the apotheosis of Jones's ultra-nationalist, conspiracy-addled view of the world, to write a short book, the aforementioned Elephant in the Room. In addition to an undercurrent of discomfort with his role in Jones's initial rise to prominence, this book sees Ronson trying to leverage his estranged friendship with the man into journalistic access to the Trump campaign. The effort fails, but seeing him wrestle with the strange way the world has moved in an Infowars direction since 2000 is illuminating, especially since to Ronson, at the time, the possibility of a Trump presidency, and Alex Jones' potential influence on it, was a real but unlikely threat that was still only on the horizon. So you should go read and listen to Ronson, especially on the topic of Alex Jones. But before we move on, we want to take a quick moment to note another major creator whose career weirdly intersects with that of Mr. Jones. Back again in the early 2000s, director Richard Linklater put out a hugely ambitious project called Waking Life, which in beautiful rotoscoped animation tells a story in which a young man talks philosophy and meaning with a wide array of characters as he wanders through a series of dreamlike landscapes. One of those he encounters is a manic guy driving around town, broadcasting his highly idiosyncratic opinions via loudspeakers mounted on the top of his car. Did we mention that Linklater is based out of Austin? Care to guess who he cast? I don't know about you, but I'm concerned with what's happening in this world. I'm concerned with the structure. I'm concerned with the systems of control. Those that control my life and those that seek to control it even more! I want freedom! That's what I want, and that's what you should want! It's up to each and every one of us. Jones has an even more on-brand role as a screaming paranoiac ranting about conspiracies of the powerful to push the fictional drug Substance D on the populace in the other rotoscoped Linklater film, A Scanner Darkly. Where did Substance D come from? Why can't we stop it? The bigger this war gets, the more freedoms we lose, the more Substance D is on our streets. Can't you figure this out? Look around you! Look how far we've come! Humanity wasn't meant to live like this! Our every waking moment, tracked and traced and scanned! It's time to stop submitting to this tyranny! It's time to realize that we're being enslaved! Uh Uh-oh, it's our tax dollars at work, protect us from ourselves! Hey guys, I used to be one of you! Stop selling out your own species! His character, declaiming into a bullhorn on a sidewalk, is then tased and abducted by mysterious masked men in a van. And this seems like an incredible deal for Alex, whom we presume otherwise will have to pay top dollar for that kind of wish fulfillment. Incidentally, Scanner Darkly is based on the novel of the same name by genius, sci-fi, idea man, and patron saint of the paranoid, Philip K. Dick, who we're kinda sorta obsessed with, and who definitely is on the future list for a quick hit of his own. Quick hit, Philip K. Dick. I know you're excited, guy.
with that, we seem pretty up to date on the changing fortunes of Mr. Jones and his associates. So let's turn our attention to one of the conspiracy theories he's covered in the past, the mysteries of the Denver airport. Um, I've been out to the Denver International Airport. I've talked to the experts. I've looked at it. They are building giant underground bases. Uh, it is the real government of the United States. They've got a shadow Congress, a place for them to meet. They're in Colorado Springs, under the mountains. They admittedly have underground bases there. But they've got giant underground connectors and systems there to bring Americans in on aircraft to disappear underground uh, into prisons and execution centers, uh, but also to uh, get the elites uh, underground under biochemical, uh, nuclear, radiological attack. Holy shit, did you actually create a workable transition for this Frankenstein's monster of a show? You know, I think I did. Go me! Far be it from us, especially in the wake of his breathless assertions about the sinister subtext of Bohemian Grove, to suggest that we might need a second opinion when Alex declares there's something weird going on at the Denver airport. Fortunately, concurring ideas about the sinister goings-on at one of our nation's busiest transportation hubs are thick on the YouTube ground. Wait, someone other than Alex believes this horseshit? Oh, Dana. So very, very many people do. News and Views brings you a documentary on some anomalies that have been discovered in Denver Airport, Colorado, and on what we believe authorities have attempted to cover up about the mysterious characteristics of this airport. Which is the Denver International Airport. Now, there have been a range of conspiracy theories, so-called, about the Denver International Airport. The most known is that this Denver airport, which is, by the way, the largest airport in the United States, is likely a massive base. Well, the base is actually said to be underground, and we know for a fact, and we'll show you some evidence here in a moment, that would prove this to be the case, and that basically the airport is going to be a major hub and mechanism in the continuity of government process and it's almost as if they've built this airport with some sort of information that we don't know about that something bad is going to happen in the near future so this airport here, and today i have a lot of important information to share with you we're going to be talking about the denver airport and their most recent advertisements and what they have put up because i'm telling you they're literally putting the truth right in front of your face but are you seeing it or are you still thinking that all of this is just a conspiracy theory and oh this is just make-believe and oh it's all just a fake i'm telling you it's welcome to, to revelation unraveled i'm your host william tapley also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. This program is a continuation of my series on the Denver International Airport, and especially the murals and the art contained therein. Because they are evil, they are signs of Satanism, and on this program I will point out that many of them are phallic symbols. Let's take a look at the first of these. Perhaps the biggest moment for the Denver airport was when former wrestler, actor, and inexplicably governor of a Midwestern state, Jesse Ventura, went full nutjob in 2010 and produced a fairly professional-looking series called Conspiracy Theory. One of his episodes, the in retrospect hilariously titled Apocalypse 2012, features a nice crystallization of some of the points we heard from those other loons just now. Disaster is coming in 2012. The ancient Mayans predicted it. Now our government is preparing for it. Building underground bunkers so the elite can hide. 
while the rest of us die. And a survivalist architect has given him a clue to the biggest government bunker of all. Governor? Yeah. He's talking about Denver Airport. Really? Yeah. The conspiracy theory people believe that Denver Airport was built to hide a bunker. It went way over budget, it's in the middle of nowhere, and they moved about a third of the earth that they moved to build the Panama Canal. Well, then it's obvious I gotta go to Denver. First plane available. Bye-bye. Call us crazy, but we weren't willing to take Governor the Body's word for it either. So, in our 2017 road trip across the conspiracy centers of the United States, we accepted a kind invitation from Heath Montgomery, Senior Public Information Officer for the airport, to visit the site, interview him, and see for ourselves what the fuss was about. I'm Heath Montgomery. I'm a spokesman for Denver International Airport. So I was a professional journalist for about eight or nine years here in Colorado and uh, transitioned to public relations, worked at a uh, district attorney's office for a year, and then I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to come to the airport uh, f about five years ago. So I've been here for about five years. I'm the senior public information officer, and so I deal with media, I deal with the public, our social media efforts. So you can imagine I deal with a, a wide cross-section of America. Heath, the very definition of a good sport, both sat for our questions in his office and also gave us a live walking tour of the conspiracy theorists' greatest hits. But before we get to the weirdness, we feel we should give him a quick chance to pimp his spot. Love the airport. It's, it's a little city. We've got 35,000 people who work here. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, it's actually, amazing. Yeah. It's the largest airport by land size in the United States and North America, the second largest in the world. So this airport is currently the sixth busiest airport in the United States, but we are the largest by physical footprint in the United States, which is why we're sort of the target of some of these things. Uh, we're 53 square miles, and we're projecting uh, over 60 million passengers this year for the first time ever. So we're seeing record passenger traffic and growth. We're going to be building 22, actually 26 new gates on the concourses over the next five years to accommodate all the growth that's coming from passenger traffic and airline requests. So this facility is, is unique in the United States for its ability to grow over time. The reason we have so much land is so that we can double our runway space from 6 to 12, we can double our concourse space, and we can double our terminal space over time. So we can serve upwards of well over 100 million people a year at full build-out. There's no other airport in the country that can do that. Since we've already heard from the conspiracy addled that there are plenty of supposedly disturbing things about this airport, we're going to have a little fun by using the portentously titled Denver Airport Conspiracy Theory, a documentary. Available on YouTube. We'll link in the show notes. As our overall conspiracist go-to resource, adding other baseless allegations as needed while letting Heath swat them out of the air like a King Kong of truth, crushing the biplanes of lies while protecting the innocent fey rays of domestic and international air travel. Penalty on the play, roughing the metaphor, first down, conspiracists. Shit, but the championship's on the line. Okay, team, let's do it. Let's win this one for the Jesuit. Dude, please calm down. Okay, okay, I'm cool. I'm cool. Let's proceed with the nonsense. Denver Airport was built in 1995 on a span of 53 square miles. Even though Denver already had a functioning airport, a new one was decidedly built. This new airport had less runways and absolutely no new technological advancement. The only thing that this new airport has that the old one didn't is a strangely large amount of space. As we've already heard Heath point out, the open space surrounding the airport is one of its selling points. 
And as to the need to replace the old airport, the new airport's placement way outside the city center, and how they're leveraging all of that space into new construction, we think Heath again paints a pretty convincing picture. And opened in 1995. It was under construction for a number of years before then. It was, at the time, one of the largest uh, development projects in the country, actually. They replaced the old Stapleton International Airport. It was landlocked. It was congested. It didn't have the ability to grow. So what they did is they put the airport out here, which we lovingly refer to as Kansas sometimes. Uh, at least it feels that way to some travelers because we're located a number of miles away from the downtown epicenter. Uh, but the reason they did that is there's land out here. There's actually 53 square miles that make up the actual airport property itself. That is the largest land mass of any airport in North America and the second largest in the world. So we have more room to grow out here than anybody else. It's incrementally cheaper for us to do that. We have six runways today. We have the ability to, to build six more for a total of 12 runways. That would allow us to serve about 100 million passengers per year, if not more. So we do see that, that the forethought that went into planning this airport is going to pay off in the decades to come because the demand for air travel just continues to grow. Setting them up, knocking them down. Next, conspiracists. The runways as Nazi swastika. When looking at an aerial shot of the new airport, the layout has shocked many. Denver Airport's runways have been situated in such a way that resembles a Nazi swastika. What people say is that they're uh, shaped like a swastika. It's not true. If you look at the aerials, you have to really stretch to get to that shape in the first place. But people make, make the leap. What people don't understand is how airports operate. Um, in Denver, another reason why we have so much land is because we have non-intersecting runways. So we have two east-west runways on uh, either side of the airfield, and then we have four north-south runways total. Uh, two on each side of the airfield. So what we've done is we've spaced them out so that they don't cross over one another. And what, what that allows us to do is have continuous flight operations on all six runways at the same time. You can't do that at other airports where two or more of their runways actually intersect. You can land one, and it's all based on wind direction. So when the wind is coming out of the east or west, aircraft take off into the wind. So then you use those east-west runways. If it's coming from the north-south, you take off into the wind north or south. If there's no wind, you can use all six runways ways, depending on where you're going to the East Coast, West Coast, you just go that way and it's more fuel efficient for the airlines. So that's why those runways are laid out the way they are. When we build more runways, it will destroy that shape. The swastika runway accusation really stands out as uniquely stupid. Like, even if the rest of this horseshit is true, why go to the trouble and expense of making the runways kinda sorta, but definitely not really, look like something that a highly motivated person could reinterpret as vaguely resembling a swastika? Unconvincing runway images are, as you might expect, linked in the show notes. The New World Order Denver Airport has a myriad of symbols that are correlated to the New World Order. There is a dedication stone in the airport that mentions the New World Airport Commission. However, there is no such thing. The New World Airport Commission is made up and was never created. One can only assume that it is alluding to the New World Order. This whole New World Order thing deserves its own show, and eventually it's going to get it. Suffice it to say for the moment, though, that the idea of Alex Jones's favorite enemies, the nebulously defined globalists, forming a one-world government via the New World Order is one of the greatest hits of early 90s conspiracy mongering. See the militia trials recovered in episode 4, the midpoint of our Posse Comitatus Sovereign Citizens trilogy, for more of this tasty absurdity. 
And for one former governor, it's also the animating idea behind the sinister subtext he imagines for the airport. Weirdly, considering how mysterious and contentious this plaque allegedly is, Heath seemed comfortable elucidating its secrets to us. Unfortunately, that's because those secrets were, um, no offense, Heath, boring? And, like, not secret at all? But then there is the mason symbol on both the braille and the stone itself. Uh, people associate that with the Freemasons, and the Freemasons have long been associated with, as you know, conspiracies. Yeah. Every conspiracy. Every conspiracy. So we're no different. Uh, it doesn't matter that we tell people that the Masons have long been a civic organization that helps build things like granite capstones, uh -huh. right? Uh, or helps with uh, foundational stones and architecture in major public facilities. Uh, that's what it was. The, the piece that doesn't help us is that at the bottom there's an inscription that says New World Airport Commission. Unfortunately, the way that it, that is supposed to read is the new, comma, World, World airport, airport Commission. Commission because this was a new global airport, yep. new international airport. They didn't put the comma in, so, so it just says New World Airport Commission, which people associate then with the New World Order, right? Then we hear that this commission doesn't exist. True, does not exist today. Did exist 1994 when the capstone was laid. The New World Airport Commission was literally a group of people who were from civic organizations and business community, uh, and they were the party planning committee for the opening festivities of the airport. And their names are inscribed under the New World Airport Commission. Yeah. So you can see the organizations, uh, Bradburn Architects, Fentress Bradburn Architects, uh, you know, they helped design the building. Yeah. They're on there as a member of the party planning committee. Sure. Conspiracy theorists failing to do the research since the beginning of fucking time. Our documentarians mention one theory so weird and obscure our pre-interview research didn't even uncover it. There is a plate on the floor that shows the symbols A-U-A-G. Some may say that this is related to gold and silver. However, one of the sponsors of the airport discovered a new deadly strain of hepatitis known as Australian antigen. And this is also symbolized by A-U-A-G. Here again, the image is in the show notes. But this was a new one on us. Luckily, Heath's heard it all many, many, many times. See that there's uh, this brass emblazoned uh, tapestry in the floor. Uh, this is actually another piece of artwork by another Colorado artist, but the one that gets the most attention is the one behind us, the AUAG. So this is the I believe silver it's, and gold. It's it, it is in fact literally silver and gold uh -huh. in a mining cart representing Colorado's mining heritage. What the conspiracy theorists say is that that is some abbreviation for what I believe is called the Australian antigen, and it is a global I haven't pandemic. Even heard of this? Yeah, one. this is a deeper one. I'm so excited. Yeah, so people think that this antigen is a global disease that will start a pandemic, and that this is a reference to that, and somehow the facility is connected to either dispersing this plague on humanity or protecting the elite during the dispersal of the plague on humanity. Next up public art, specifically the series of four evocative murals that are featured in the airport. Documentary now! Well, let's talk more about the murals in Denver Airport. The first mural here shows three dead women, an African, a Native American, and a young Jewish girl. In the background, we can see the destruction of a city and a forest. This attempts to show the destruction of the world and the preservation of some life. The second mural shows a huge military figure 
wearing a gas mask, and holding a machine gun and a sword. This sword is stabbing a dove, which is the symbol for peace, and implies that peace will be destroyed. There are grayish waves emanating from the figure, and these waves represent death, or in this case, a poisonous gas that has killed everyone in its path. This mural is the one with the AUAD symbol, the one that is related to the deadly virus strain. The emphasis of this mural is of, of a cleansing that is going to kill a myriad of people in its path. The third mural shows all of the children of the world taking their weapons from each country and giving them to a German boy, who is then molding them into something else. All the children of this scene are of different ethnicity and all seem to be relieved. The gas mask man in the previous mural is seen dead and there are two doves perched on his body. The final mural has a Jesus-like figure in the middle who is holding a plant which symbolizes rebirth. All of the people are running towards this man with happy expressions. This final mural alludes to a new Garden of Eden where the world is perfect size and everything could work together in peace after the genocide that has taken place. All in all, these murals, when put together, represent the formation of a new world filled with fewer people. And this is also the goal of the New World Order, which has been seen represented throughout various parts. Before we hand it to Heath, we need to point out that the narration you just heard gets the murals panels out of order. The one introduced as the final panel is actually panel two, while the two panels featuring the soldier are actually numbers three and four. Again, we'll link in proper order in the show notes. The murals are maybe the most famous conspiracy theorist object of concern, as other videos will attest. But we think you'll see that Heath's explanation, along with the readily visible explanatory plaques that are next to the goddamn murals in the goddamn airport so even the most oblivious conspiracy theorist could hardly miss them, offers a much simpler and, you know, accurate indication of what these pieces represent. So, what we're coming up on is one of actually four murals. People say that we have a a mural that is connected to the New World Order or these other conspiracies that we've heard over the years. We actually have four different murals. They're two sets of two. They're all done by a Colorado artist named Leo Tenguma. And so each one of them tells a story. And what people put on the internet is one image in particular or maybe two images, but there's actually four. And the part that you're missing out on is the narrative of the artwork. One side tells a story about the potential, in this piece for example, the, t the potential for environmental disaster if we continue to pollute and destroy endangered species. And then the other side of the mural, which you do not see on the internet, is the, the part where the children of the world are coming together in peace and harmony, where the environment is protected and cared for, uh, where a center uh, flower in the center is actually growing and prospering. And the name of this piece is In Peace and Harmony with Nature. And the title itself sort of explains the narrative that he's trying to describe. Sure. But you don't see the title and you don't see the second piece of art. Right. The other thing that people overlook or choose to overlook is that we actually have a plaque mounted on the wall right over here that actually describes 
describes the vision of the ah. artist. So reading it, it says, In Peace and Harmony with Nature addresses environmental issues of the world. One side of the mural shows children pouring out great sadness over the destruction and extinction of human life, flora, and fauna. The other part depicts humanity coming together to rehabilitate and celebrate nature and its diversity. Well, it's almost as if when you say it like that, that it's not... Uh, uh really worthy of a conspiracy at all. I don't think it is. How weird yeah. that that's how it worked out. Okay. This is the most yeah. famous one. So this is another piece by Leo Tanguma. It's another mural on a different end of the terminal, and it's called Children of the World Dream of Peace. Again, it's a narrative story. So what you see on the internet is what you're actually supposed to see first, which is the figure of the masked soldier with the weapon and the sword, uh, and there's children underneath of them. Now, the conspiracy theorists say that the children are dead. The children are not dead. The children are sleeping, and they are literally dreaming of a world of peace. Right. So that's represented by the rainbow that's coming out of the children and over the soldier and into the second mural. So uh -huh. if you follow, the children are literally dreaming of, in the second mural, a world of peace. And so on this piece... Where the soldier the, is a statue that has the, been broken. The statue has been broken, the weapon is disarmed, there are doves sitting on the soldier. The are children literally hammering that into a plowshare, as near as I can tell. Exactly. So all these children of all different nationalities are coming together. Um, and actually, I believe that the artists use children who have all been uh, victims of uh, violence in the community as, as, as the representative children. Yeah. But it's fair to say that this is hardly the sort of namby-pamby, easy-on-the-eyes art you normally see in airports, which Heath suggests is an artifact of its installation in the new airport in a pre-9-11 context. I mean, admittedly, it's an edgy piece, yeah, right? Sure. In today's environment, would this piece have been selected for Probably an international not, yeah. airport? Probably not. But in 1995? In 1995, it was selected and uh, it, because of the story that it tells, mm -hmm. right? Sure. It is a positive global story, mm -hmm. right? Breaking news, conspiracy update. Due to a major planned renovation, the more controversial of the murals, the one with the soldier and the gun and the sword and all, has been taken down until at least 2021. We will take it as stipulated that this is simply what they want us to think, man. Tunnels and construction. The tunnels are really part and parcel of Governor the Body's case against the airport and its shadowy overlords, as his series is at pains to relate. Jesse and his guide, Jay Widener, drive away from the terminal into the 53 square miles of flat, vacant land surrounding the airport. Jesse isn't far from the terminal when he sees something that's almost as shocking. Construction. Denver International Airport construction support. Clearly, there's a lot of construction still going on when you look at this because these aren't abandoned places out here. There's also excavation, clear evidence they're still digging beneath the airport property. See now that, that pile of dirt over there, way over there? Yeah, the big That's huge. not a mountain, that's dirt. This is completely flat here, this is Great Plains. That dirt came from somewhere. Look at the massive quantity of rock. And then, the reason all the earth is being moved, like statues in the desert, tunnels. Structures waiting to be placed underground. What in the hell are those? Those are absolutely for a tunnel. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. You firmly believe absolutely. there's an underground facility underneath this new Denver airport? I've had drywallers, I've had painters, I've had mechanics tell me it. Why would they lie? I believe them. I have too many people tell me the same story, and they're just regular folks. They're not, they're not, they don't have an agenda. 
part of a plan to save their butts when the end of the world comes. So, Mr. Smarty Pants Airport spokesman, how do you account for this, huh? If you see them, they're not very good facilities to sustain a population over a long period of time. So uh, we do have underground facilities here, beginning with the area under the main terminal. It's called a baggage resolution area. And so when the bags get checked in by the airlines, they go down a conveyor belt down below where they are. And that's where the airlines operate to sort the bags, send them to TSA screening equipment, and then load them onto uh, carts or tugs. These tugs will drive uh, the bags from the uh, baggage makeup area under the terminal through a very long tunnel that has wings on the A, B, and C concourses with ramps that allow them to then drive up to the aircraft. And so that's how they move bags back and forth. The reason for that in Colorado is some airports um, in warmer weather climates uh, do all of this on the surface. We don't do that because we have snow and ice and it would be logistically almost impossible to have t uh, tugs with uh, you know heavy baggage loads sure, moving around outside on the ice. Yeah. Boy, that does make an incredibly convincing case. And while we're on the subject, our documentary is also weirdly focused on the fact that the underground tunnels feature sprinkler systems, which it asserts are unnecessary and obviously sinister. The sprinkler systems have no use, but they may be related to the deadly virus Australian antigen and the pursuits of the New World Order. You hear that? It's that pesky Australia antigen again which is clearly a bioweapon. Nope. What? With about five seconds of Googling, we discovered that the Australian antigen is so-called because the researcher who first identified it, Baruch Blumberg, did so in a blood sample taken from an individual who was an Australian Aborigine. And far from being a bioweapon, it's a blood marker that has been so useful in helping to identify, research, and treat hepatitis B that Mr. Blumberg won the Nobel Prize in 1976 for his work. Okay, fine. But you have to admit, it is weird that it happens to be written out as A-U-A-G, just like the gold and silver plaque we discussed earlier. It's not, though. It's H-B-S-A-G, written as Big H, Big B, Little S, Big A, Little G. Oh. Well, then. It seems once again conspiracy theorists have misled us. For shame, conspiracy theorists. Go think about what you've done. There are a couple of other pieces of art featured prominently in the airport that have attracted the attention of other cranks, though apparently they didn't rise to our documentarian's attention. To address these, we turn once again to Jesse V, and another like-minded loon we'll cover more in-depth in a few minutes. But there are other things that bring even more mystery, as I said earlier, the many statues of these demonic-like creatures, gargoyles, demons, many of them uh, sculpted to look as if they were popping out of a suitcase, which I, I have to say, that's just a wonderful sight to see uh, right before you're about to get on an airliner. And I wonder just how many people, after having seen that, uh, wondered if it was some sort of omen and uh, whether they should have taken the flight at all. I can only imagine. I don't know why he's coming out of a suitcase, but it's a very disturbing image. Well, let me ask this. Why are they giving all the hints? I mean, it's like they're almost telling you a story here. They're it. almost saying, okay, if you're perceptive enough, you're going to get what's going to happen. If you're not perceptive, you're just going to have to deal with it when it happens. See, that's exactly the point. They only want people to survive who have certain kinds of perceptive skills. We saw these gargoyles, and they are indeed pretty weird looking. What we mean is, they're weird looking in exactly the same way as every other gargoyle we've ever seen in our lives. Except this one was in the baggage claim area and appeared to be seated in an open suitcase. 
Heath has a ready explanation here, along with some information that helps to explain why this airport features such a seemingly large amount of public art, whether weird or not, in comparison to other major airports. Obviously, the airport has invested a lot in art. Like, what what was the rationale? That's a reflection of the values of the city and county of Denver. So everything in Denver has what's called a 1% for art ordinance associated with it. So all new construction projects and physical infrastructure uh, work like new buildings and facilities like an airport. 1% of that cost has to go to public art investments. So when the airport was built, it was a $5 billion investment. We have an art program to match that level of investment. So you see it throughout our collection. We have a permanent art collection, we have temporary art collections, and we have rotating temporary exhibits. This piece here in baggage claim is called Notre Denver. It's part of that permanent collection I was talking about. Mm -hmm. It's one of two different gargoyles. They're actually sitting in suitcases. What people don't understand is that gargoyles historically in the United States are placed on buildings as an omen of of good fortune and goodwill. They're not a negative image uh, in the historic context. And this one, the artist was was having a playful take on that by putting it inside Mm -hmm. of a cast iron suitcase. And really what it's meant to do is provide good fortune over your bags to make sure that your your bags are going to get from your aircraft to you. To you, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, there's a plaque on the wall that explains everything. Uh, We've had uh, former Governor Jesse Ventura stand here on his conspiracy show, which started a lot of this, and openly say and challenge this image and say that uh, if you know what to look for, the signs of the apocalypse are all around you. And this is one of those open images. Uh, That's one thing that we've fought against for years. Does anyone wonder how a uh, metal sculpture does trigger the apocalypse exactly? Uh, I have openly wondered that myself. Okay. Before we wrap things up, we have to address the elephant in the Denver airport room, which has no connection to Mr. Ronson's Jones book, and is in fact not so much an elephant as it is a towering blue Mustang statue rising out of the flat plane as you approach the facility. It's huge, it has glowing red eyes, and it's fairly controversial. Strange and sometimes horrifying is this giant 32-foot-tall horse statue that is nicknamed Lucifer, go figure, at its entrance. The horse, standing up on its hind legs, displays what appear to be spikes running down its neck, bright red, fiery glowing, scary, demon-like eyes. I mean, it was named Lucifer, for Christ's sake. In fact, this is the conspiracy theory that Heath himself was familiar with before he came to work at the airport. You know, I, I, I kind of heard through, you know, the Internet, there's conspiracies regarding the airport, mostly about the horse, the Mustang statue out front. Uh, but that was the first thing I heard. One of Mostly, people think this thing is cursed, that it has the red eyes of a demon, and that like any giant realistic sculpture from a horror movie, it murdered its creator, punishing him for the crime of bringing it to a cursed form of demi-life. Or something like that. So the horse is technically named Mustang. He has a lot of different names. Uh, Probably half the people we talk to love him, think he's a Colorado icon. The other half of the people hate him. They think he's ugly and demonic. It's a large public art piece. And we like the fact that people actually talk about it. We like the, the fact that there's disagreement on what he represents or doesn't represent. There's a lot of history in that piece that people don't understand. It is true that a piece of the sculpture fell on the artist who created it and killed him. That is true. That's a fact. Uh, But 
people don't understand that things like the glowing red neon eyes in the horse are actually the artist's homage to his father, who was a neon light artist. So oh, wow. the reason okay. that there's red neon lights is because that's what his father worked with. So that was an homage to, to his dad. Oh, okay. So there's reasons for the way that it is. Um, you know, it's an artistic vision that came from a particular artist and was finished by his studio after his death. Uh, but he has since become, in the last many years, one of the most recognizable pieces of art in Colorado. All of this art got us thinking. In a sense, this hoopla around the Denver airport results simply from the fact that the city of Denver mandates art in public places, and that back in the 90s, people were maybe a little less sensitive about the background images they saw in airports. It's basically that because your airport doesn't have boring art, you're a target. Yes. It's a weird, weird world we live in. It is. Yeah. So Heath was fighting the good fight against conspiracy allegations. We assumed that this duty was a millstone around his neck and a real source of anguish for his department and the airport in general. But nothing, it turns out, could be further from the truth. Uh, it, but we've had local media, we've had national media, um, even as recently as within the last year. Uh, it, it's gotten to the point where last October we hosted for 30 days Conspiracy Month at the airport. And we openly embraced all of these different conspiracy theories. We had a temporary art exhibit that was open in the terminal that anybody could go visit. It explained all the theories and it explained the debunking of those theories. You know, BuzzFeed created a spike in interest. So it's whenever an organization or a media outlet picks it up as a story, because it is an interesting story, uh, then we start to see the comments on, on the internet primarily. But we've received physical letters, we've received emails from around the world, uh, we get phone calls from people. I've literally taken a phone call from someone who was probably a teenager, and the first thing they say is you say, hello, Denver International Airport, and the other line of the phone says, uh, can you tell me about the bunker? And you know, what I tell people is that the success that we've had marketing this airport via conspiracy theories probably outnumbers the success that we've had with traditional marketing tactics. Um, you know, when we hosted Conspiracy Month last October, you know, you have organizations like ABC World News Tonight uh, touring the facility, talking about the airport, talking about us embracing uh, these outlandish things. Uh, it, it does promote us as a, uh, a fun voice of a public organization. We are city-owned agency. I don't, I would challenge any other city agency in the country to have the kind of fun that we have. Of course, as we've learned, there is nothing that's so obvious or ironic that a dedicated conspiracy theorist can't miss the joke. Case in point, in September of this year, the airport launched its most tongue-in-cheek advertising effort yet, one that uses images and suggestions pulled straight from the conspiracy theorist playbook to promote a site called the Den Files a cross between Fox Mulder and the airport's official IATA airport code. We'll link to the stories from the show notes, but if you're too lazy to click, suffice it to say we're talking lizard-headed aliens on a sign indicating new construction and offering a multiple-choice test under the heading, What are we doing? Option A, adding new restaurants and bars. Option B, building an Illuminati headquarters. Option C, remodeling the lizard people's lair. Okay, look, it's not Patton Oswald, but this is a sign in an airport, for Christ's sakes. Grade him on a curve, won't you? Anywho, one of the loons we included in the montage of conspiracist accusations a few minutes ago was from a UFO research channel on YouTube called Secure Team. Their breathless discussion of the mysteries of the airport was posted in 2016. But guess what? This new ad campaign by the airport prompted a still more breathless update video. The airport itself, or those who are actually in control of just the airport 
have created this new advertising campaign with brand new billboards scattered throughout the airport that basically admit that the airport is shrouded in mystery and that these theories about it are real. And so, uh, you know, whether you want to call it them poking fun at these conspiracy theories as they call them, or whether, as some believe, they are actually admitting that the cover-up is real, but are simply doing it through these sort of happy and, and funny billboards. By some sort of this guy has quite a high opinion of his own importance, by the way, suggesting at one point that this whole ironic response can be chalked up to his incredible influence. They're obviously poking fun at these theories due precisely because of the pressure that they've been receiving, especially after the video I put out, which has now gotten millions of views since. It really sort of sparked the debate about the airport, and I guess you could call this my follow-up to that original video. Cool story, bro. And so, to the horror of many conspiracy theorists and the indifference of millions of annual air travelers, the Denver International Airport continues to be a busy and growing transportation hub, unfazed or even energized by the theorists' flailing attempts to connect it to silly, ill-conceived, impossible accusations. Lord knows we can't predict the future. But we like to think there's a strong possibility that in his peripatetic life of travel and self-promotion, Alex Jones may someday find himself walking through another airport, once again haranguing a busy, important figure like Senators Sanders or Rubio, who has little or no idea of who the large, loud man following them is, or why he thinks he should warrant their attention. But as we imagine it this time, it's the Denver airport. And when Alex sees that big, beautiful lizard man construction sign, he shits his pants in fear, abandons his harassment, and runs away. Because Infowars and Denver Airport conspiracies are all part of the same paranoid strain. This has been the Paranoid Strain. Quick hit. Follow us on Twitter at Paranoid Strain, email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra. You may have noticed we have some new tunes in our soundtrack, and we realize that while we always identify our band leader and rhythm guitarist in our credits, we've never given individual plaudits to the other guys. Until now. On lead guitar, the legendary Moisty. On sax, Jason's wife. On bass, we have Turd Ferguson. Lucifer Jones slaps the skins, and yours truly plays piano and organ and such. The sessions were produced by the inimitable South Fork Hoss and his invaluable assistant, Dennis Root. These guys are the greatest, and I couldn't do it without them. Hire them for your wedding, your bar mitzvah, or the next fundraiser for your local chapter of the Illuminati. We are also, as always, indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super-duper website, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we're tackling the role of assassination conspiracies, both real and imagined, in shaping our cultural and political history. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
leftover props from Wolfman battles the space mutants, but are apparently supplements Jones expects you to put into your body. That's so weird. He doesn't look healthy. You'd think that people would look at Jones and go, if his supplements worked, would he not look a little less sort of like a like a sausage angry ready to explode like he 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 doesn't like i mean if you looked like chris helmsworth i'd be like mm, i'll have what he's having but i'm looking at at alex jones and i'm like i am going nowhere near having what he's having i really don't understand how how he is not like how how do people sort of disbelieve their own eyes in that sense i um if his supplements worked, I think Alex Jones would just be a little, he would sort of give off a, an animal scent of like, you know, uh, health and, and, and success. And, and, and my, my, my animal scent of him is sort of like, just avoid, avoid diseased about to implode. Anyways, 